Greetings! And welcome to episode two of Running Up the Downstairs. My name is Josh Finkelman! And this intro is a little grandiose because my uh, guest on episode number two here is Michelon Rodriguez, who is the apprentice creative director of the Factory Theater here in Toronto. And I thought that I would introduce him with something befitting his stature. Um, he's not the most grandiose person, but theater can be very grandiose. And so I thought echoes and reverb and let's try something different. Anyhow, he came over to my place and we talked here uh, where I left the door open. And because this was quite some time ago, it was super cold. Um, so a little bit of background info when you're listening. You might be able to hear us uh, sort of not being as warm as we could be because I left the door open. Anyways, episode two, coming at ya. get started um so oh wait uh you go by mickey right like it's not like as do people know you as so my like credits it's michelon yeah but like talking it's mickey so i use them interchangeably in so like interactions okay okay, okay, i gotcha i gotcha but in terms of like titles and like well it's so funny with like facebook and shit and people have like different names and i'm always like yeah i don't actually know what to refer to you as (laughs) because I know you one way. Like, I have a friend named, uh, his name's Brian, mm-hmm. um, but I met him as Barney right. and knew him as Barney the entirety of the time that we were, like, like real friends. Yeah. And now it's been, like, 10, you know, 10 years or so since I stopped seeing him regularly, and he's, like, an accountant, kids, and, like, married and all that shit, and he's Brian, yeah. right? And everyone calls him Brian. And, like, especially towards the end of, like, my Thornhill time, like people called hit were calling him Brian but I was like stubbornly only calling him Barney <laughs> and I only know him as Barney yeah. and so now now I call him Barney and I feel weird about it but yeah. I can't not call him Barney you know like yeah, and I'm like, pretty you know, sure like honestly the only people who, who call me Michelon are usually professors yeah and um and people who only met me for the first time did your mom call you Michelon when you're in trouble only when I was in trouble <laughs> yeah. that's when I get Joshua people are like Joshua yeah. and I'm like what did I fucking do <laughs> leave me alone yeah um, all right, so we're gonna we're gonna just jump right into it. Um, welcome to episode two of Running Up the Downstairs. Uh, this is my podcast about doing shit because I don't do shit, um, or at least I haven't done shit up until this point. But this is clearly some shit we're doing right here. So who knows? Maybe we'll we'll turn it all around. But uh, my guest today is Michelon Rodriguez. Um, but I know him as Mickey because I've known him for a while and you're just meeting him now. So if you want to be all formal and shit, uh, you can call him Michelon, but otherwise, uh, he's Mickey, um, and he's done a whole bunch of shit and we're going to talk about all the stuff that he does and the cool things that he's doing now. Um, so Mickey, just start, just jump in there, you know, just be like, shut up, Josh. It's like, all right, these are all this list of the yeah. things that just I do. Be, <laughs> just be like, okay, number one, I do this and I, number two, I do that. Um, Mickey is like in theater and of theater and, uh, a variety of theater type things. So like, how did you get into it? Like, what was your first time? Like, what was the first time? Ooh, uh, I'd say back in elementary school, uh, they had this test where if you took it, you're supposed to go to a gifted school. If you, if you passed, and so and so I passed it. I remember, and that. Uh, I refused to go because my friends couldn't come. Like I I, never, asked, I did the exact yeah. same thing. I refused. Yeah, I was like, my mom was like, "Hey, do you want to go to this gifted school?" I was like, "Can my friends come?" And she's like, "Not all of them." And I'm like, then I don't want to go. 
But what that ended up meaning was the my elementary school created a program for quote unquote gifted children, which I don't really count myself as one. But it was fun <laughs> because half the things that we would do there would just be writing scenes and then playing them. Oh shit! And this was like grade two, grade three. So wait, like you were writing like th- like play type scenes, like skits? Yeah, like skits, sketches. Crazy. And it would be like stupid stuff, like going to space and and being astronauts. But it was fun, and that was kind of started the the engine for oh, I really like kind of acting like an idiot. Yeah, yeah. And sort of fast forward in grade six, whose line is it anyway? The BBC version we're showing on YTV. Holy man. <laughs> twelve o'clock, twelve thirty, something <laughs> yeah. like that, you go home for and, lunch. And they had Colin Mockery. Totally. So, you know, respect to Colin Mockery. That's too funny because now that's like not to interrupt you, but like literally that's I've done two podcasts and Colin Mockery has now come up in both of them. Well because he, he was on the, he was the, on the show. show. Exactly. Yeah and I saw that episode and that was amazing. That was our that yeah. was our most popular show. So you thank, thanks for <laughs> thanks for watching. So more shouts <laughs> to Colin Mockery just come on to the podcast. One day Colin. Yeah. One day <laughs> But seeing that show, I was amazed that it was all made up. Like, nothing was scripted. Yeah. And and when I learned that, I, I took it to my teacher and said, hey, can we do these games? And she's like, yeah, just run them. So we ran improv games in grade six. And then fast forward again to high school, and there was a, a teacher named Sarah Agathos who brought the Canadian improv games to the school. Like, oh, our school cool. did not have a team, but she taught schools that did have a team. And she's like, hey, I really want to try this thing. That's cool. And then from there, it was just like, I was on the improv team every year. I ended up becoming the captain, becoming the captain coach. And it's still something that my high school does now since then. That's crazy. And it's one of their most favorite things when it comes to their drama program. So a combination of that, along with two really stellar, or three stellar teachers who were all really supportive of me wanting to do acting as a career... And uh, my one teacher, uh, Mr. Lee, who's retired now, but he was my drama teacher in high school. And what he, he was the one who actually gave me the sit down talk to be like, okay, listen, you have to be a little crazy to go into theater. Is you, are you sure? Because I was, I was asking for like reference letters for university and that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, And so. The crush. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right, and yeah. so he's, he's like, all right, if you're sure, only if you're sure, I'll write you the letter. And so I said, yeah, I'm sure I want to do this. And he wrote the letter and. That, with my parents always saying, just make sure that I do what makes me happy. Like, they don't care if it's graduate high school, get the good grades, be a good Asian kid, and get straight A's. (laughs) I did that. But when it came to post-secondary, they're very much in support of whatever it was that I wanted to do. And so I wanted to go to school for theater, and so I ended up at York. Oh, and welcome did, to yeah, yeah you know. (laughs) That's an expensive piece of paper you got on your wall. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) But... It's paying off, apparently, because now that's my... I can actually say my full-time career is theater for the very first time. So let me ask you. Your pa- you said your parents were, like, totally supportive and stuff. Yeah. So my mom, also totally supportive, but also, like, in the background was that, like, eh, can you really make money from screenwriting? Like, maybe you need to think about other things. Like, did you get that sort of guilt, that pressure a little bit, or...? I don't think I did because I kind of covered my bases myself. Okay. Like, my parents, to be completely fair, I've always been pretty well off. Uh, my dad was able to secure a career as a dentist, so that means that, you know, in terms of class, probably like middle, upper middle, um, and probably still there. So I always had, I always had in the back of my mind a safety net, but I made the conscious decision to never, ever want to use that safety net, and I never have had to. That's what I did, man. Um, and so what that means, though, is that was like trying to find jobs to do, but I refused to do any jobs that I didn't like. <laughs> like, it's a common thing in theater to, and I'd say for any sort of performing arts, that there's always a side gig, and it's usually in the service industry yeah, um, yeah. of some sort. But I wanted to not do that, because I just didn't want to. 
So I remember applying to Best Buy just on a whim and got it. Yeah. And I got really bored of that after a summer. <laughs> like, quit. And then I started teaching music kind of later on in high school and, and into university. And I started teaching at uh, the same music school that I went to growing up, just in a different uh, franchise in another city. Okay. Uh, Academy of Music. And nice. I taught there for close to 10 years, but as like part-time. Yeah, 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 and then of course working at very high velocity multi billion dollar company retail. So yeah, <laughs> to be named outside of this podcast because um, they have nothing to do with this. That's right. Uh, but that's where we met, and it's yeah. interesting because I met you and you were introducing me as a sound engineer. So when you started, all of a sudden there was theater stuff involved, and I was like, and I remember being like almost like shocked by it because I mean everyone I've always known who's been on the technical side of it tends to stay on the technical side of it. And so from my perspective, it was like you went from behind the, the, the dials, so to speak to like on the stage. So like, were, were you, when did that, cause obviously you were making money doing sound tech, right? So when did you decide to like, was there a gap? Did you stop acting and then jump back into it or? It's kind of always been running in parallel or rather jumping back and forth there. There were definitely gaps where the streak of work was in, in sound design. So to, so to clarify, it was sound design work that I was doing. Right. I have much respect for sound engineers. They have this whole other wealth of knowledge that I, I have a little bit of. Yeah. And we have friends that, that do that for sure. So you're not the but one, you weren't the one behind the... the I can be. Right, but like, now... I have that knowledge. But in terms, if like if I was going to... My, my job as a sound designer and as a composer is to create the soundtrack for the show. Um, yeah, but that but that meant though is that it was very valuable to be able to be behind the dials and be and be able to use a mixing board and know how a sound setup is supposed to work. Because honestly, I find that it's a very valuable skill that some of the younger sound designers that I'm sort of helping out and that I've worked with recently are just learning. But right. for me, I had kind of learned that first because I wanted to be a DJ. Um, yeah, and so I figured out how you're supposed to properly set up a sound system, and then that sort of expanded into okay, now I'm sort of creating these works, and I want to be able to have a studio setup that does that kind of thing. Right. So I learned how to do that sound engineering side as much as I needed to, mm-hmm. but I, it never became a thing where it's like, oh, now I want to go into like live events and ve- big right. venues, that kind of thing. It was just I know how a mixing board works, I know how a sound system works at a very rudimentary and fundamental level. Yeah. That anything else on top of that. Uh, I don't need to use, right? But it's but I I would hire someone if I wanted to, like if I needed yeah. that extra whatever it was equipment or knowledge, then I'll be using someone else. But in terms of my work as a sound designer, it really is going through the script with the director, going to rehearsals and seeing like, hey, this soundscape looks sounds really this it belongs here or this song belongs here. Or, gotcha. Uh, or maybe they needed something original, so I would compose a new score for the for the show. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Okay, so then, so the, you're you're at rehearsals and you're and you're like, oh, I, I act like was it sort of like did you have to push into acting or were you already like doing it? You know what I mean? I was kind of already doing it because my training in theater was for something called devised theater, which is where you don't necessarily just start with an already established script. You're mm-hmm. actually creating the script as you create the show. But it's not just, okay, let's write the script and then perform it. It's all of these other different techniques to kind of get there. So whether it's through improv, whether it's through movement, whether it's through music, whatever it is, using all of those elements to create the show. Because devised theater requires you to perform in your own work, I was already performing and acting in school. Sound design kind of came along because I've always just been the guy who would do the sound. Because I had the DJ background and because I was 
already learning how to use programs like Logic or Cubase, those sure. kinds of things. And because I had that knowledge, I was just making use of it in that class. Um, but that caught the attention of one of my professors, Michael Grayeyes, and so he hired me f- for my very first professional sound design gig, which was actually a TV show on Bravo. No, so I, I was just like name uh, drop that shit, man. Like, oh, it was it was a, a series called Dancing with Spirit, uh, and he did an episode called Triptych, um, and I had created the entire soundtrack and soundscape for it, and then we recorded the dancers actually singing, uh, I forget what song from what opera, but it was an acapella, and it was very scary-sounding and haunting, which was cool. But yeah, that was my my first uh, sound design credit, really, was a TV show. And I'd never worked in in television before, and I don't think I have since, (laughs) because I was like, I don't It was fun, and it was was nerve-wracking, but I knew I could get the job done, because I was like, I have no choice, I gotta... There's now someone else's show at stake. It's not just, like, my grade... Um, so I really had to make sure that I got that work done, but I did. And, nice. it, and it kind of developed a really cool relationship between Michael Grez and myself because I kind of became his composer on retainer in oh, a little nice. bit for about seven years or so. So I oh, worked wow. on a lot of his shows, but just because he saw me doing that kind of stuff in class and then just decided, hey, you seem really professional. <laughs> we should collaborate. Oh, that's like, amazing. Cool. Yeah. That's, yeah, I always, I always wanted that, like, because uh, I remember, like, in school, I was, it was always that, like, eh, I don't want to be, like, you know, you don't want to be the, you want the teacher to, like, find you, and, like, mm-hmm. I was just never the, the, the flavor of the month kid in my, in my <laughs> class, like, there was always, I always found the teacher had, like, the teacher, teachers would just get along with certain people, right, and yeah. I just, you know, didn't jive with, with my teachers, and I remember thinking, like, oh, it'd be so cool to be, like, that kid, that per like, to have a teacher that I, that I vibe with, which is how you, yeah. like, where you found yourself which is really that's I mean that's awesome right yeah yeah it really it really came down to just getting the work done but also luck and timing like there's so much of luck and timing that I've been fortunate with where it's like my work has never been that streaky there hasn't been a lot of big droughts it's always been fairly consistent but then in the last two years it's just been like non-stop just hits the and kind yeah, of goes down like it yeah. just kind of goes and goes and goes and you're like wow okay this is really picking up and that's kind of where I'm at now well tell, tell me about the new job because Mickey just got um, just left our uh, my current employer um, your former employer which oh it sounds great um, <laughs> just to be able to be like move on to something like that but yeah. tell me about your the job now like lay the like drop that title down because yeah. it's, it's amazing sure so I am the apprentice artistic director at Factory Theatre which is uh, one of the older theater companies in Toronto. They've been around for over 45 years now. Yeah, it's got to be a long time. Right? Yeah. I remember I went to see stuff at the factory. I went to see the original Puppets to the Who Kill um, no show when I was like 18 or something like that. I yeah. feel like I wasn't, I may not have even been old enough to drink. Um, but we <laughs> went to see that at the factory theater, and yeah. I, I'll, I'll, it's always like a. Um, uh, you know, like a, a point in downtown Toronto that I'll always sort of be fond of because that was one of the first places like I came to, you know, to go out and yeah. stuff like that. So when you told me you got factory, I was like, oh my God, that's so, that's so fucking cool. Forget yeah. the fact that it's right around the corner here. Yeah. It's so easy to go see a show. I know. Right. Yeah. Um, so tell me what you're doing. Tell me like, tell me what you do there. Yeah. Well, factory theater has this really awesome, uh, number of training enhancement programs. So they have, programs for actors, for directors, playwrights, and then they have one for what's called arts leadership. And that is what I was able to secure. So it was I, uh, Nina Lee Aquino is the artistic director of Factory Theatre, and she and I have worked together before on Banana Boys. I was an actor in it, and she was the director. And she 
I was at the Summerworks closing night party, which takes place in the factory theater courtyard. So summers are great there because that just becomes a big party. Right. And we were just there. I was just there to visit because I had worked on a show in Summerworks and we were chatting and she said, hey, I'm going to post this thing. You should apply for it. Didn't apply for it. Just completely forgot about it. Get another email or, or a text message from Nina saying, hey, I'm going to go to this show opening. Do you want to come? I was like, sure. And she said, do you want to go for dinner before? I was like, yeah, absolutely. And in my head, I'm like, oh, right. She told me to apply for this thing. And I still, in my head, didn't really know what it was. But I knew, for whatever reason, I was like, okay, I feel like the dinner is going to be her pitch to me for what this application is because it's kind of like, you know, I want you to apply for this. Right. I am strongly encouraging you to apply for this. <laughs> and this is like weeks later. This is, yeah, because the party was mid-August, I want to say, and this was around, like, late September. So she's recruiting you at this point. Like, kind of. what you think is It's what I think happening. is happening yeah, yeah, yeah. in my head. And then, you know, I find out later that, oh, okay, no, there was, like, a fair amount of really solid names in that pile, and but I, I came out of it as the person who got the job. But we have dinner. She outlines everything that it'll be, how flexible that it can be, yeah. and tells me that it's, you know, it's a full-time position in theater, um, it's a 40 week contract, but you're getting paid the sure. whole time yeah. to learn how to be an artistic director. And I was like, okay, that sounds really cool. Um, so I apply for it and then there's an interview that I get signed up for, uh, or that gets offered to me. And within that week, two big things happened. One was there was a retirement bash for one of my professors in theater, Peter McKinnon. Yeah. And in that bash, he gives a speech, and you see students from all different generations through his tenure at, at York. Um, he, I think in the speech he had said he had taught 4,400 theater students. Jeez, and funny. I can tell you that in every venue I've ever worked in in Toronto, whether it's tech tech crew, whether it's the uh, design crew or whether it's the cast, somebody knows who Peter McKinnon is because somebody went to York for theater. I was going to say, I feel like <laughs> I even remember his name because like I went for film and yeah. like we shared a cafeteria. That's right. And I used to make veal jokes about the sandwiches <laughs> to the acting kids because they were always very vegetarian, yeah. I found. But yeah, I remember that. I vaguely remember Yeah, well, if you ever remember seeing someone who kind of looked like Santa Claus on campus with a oh, big yeah, white totally. beard, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, Peter yeah, no, McKinnon. No, no. Definitely so he's giving his speech and he, he has this really beautiful speech about legacy and what that means to what, what you leave behind in terms of your work and the people that you affect. So that happens on a Monday. And then on Tuesday, I go to the Cap, uh, the John, John Kaplan's memorial. John Kaplan uh, is a, was a theater um, critic, or mm -hmm. rather theater reviewer is a better word, because he, was, he would always make sure to support the show. He would tell you all the reasons to see the show as opposed to reasons why you should avoid the show. Mm -hmm. And he's always been super supportive of the community, and that was a big loss to us. And going to his memorial was, again, just this whole tribute to his life and his legacy and what he wants to sort of leave and what he left behind for us. And so that got me thinking, you know, like, I've always wanted to be an actor. And then in sound design, I've always wanted to do work in music and work with sound. But when I was, any time that I do that work, it always felt like there was something missing. And I never knew what that was. And then I'm presented with this opportunity to be able to continue this path that was cleared by the generation of artists that Nina Lee Aquino is in, especially for people of color like me, where their work has made sure that we get the opportunities um, as well to be able to do the work and to tell the stories that we want to tell. And I said, you know what, I want to make sure that that doesn't stop. Because there's a really big changeover in all of the industry where it's like, oh, yeah, look, another story about a white dude is just 
it's um, you've heard it all before. A lot of white dudes out there. Yeah, a lot of white dudes. <laughs> well, at and, least it seems. <laughs> and it seems like it, you know? So for me, it became this sort of eye-opening experience where, oh, that's the thing that was missing. That was what it was. I've, I've always liked being a mentor. I've liked being in leadership positions and teaching. I've always enjoyed those things. And this position comes along where I get to combine all of those things that I love in the industry that I love and make it 100% of my work and my time. And it just sort of, it was a light bulb moment. And I just went, yeah, I gotta, I gotta do this. So I have the interview. And the next day, uh, I get the offer. And I said, yes, let's yeah. figure it out. And, and it was funny because the day after that uh, was sort of my review with one of our leaders. Right, right, right. Uh, one of our friends. And that was, I had given her a heads up that like, hey, there's this really big contract that's coming up and it's going to take me out of the store for a bit. She didn't know that it was going to be right away. So yeah, essentially yeah. at my review, I, I had to give my two weeks. Oh. Uh. Yeah. That's, I mean, there's something about that though. Like that's the right way to leave. You know, I think some people leave cause you know, they get a better gig and like it's, you know, you're just making more money and like, I mean, you can't fault someone for leaving, you know, a team for more money. Obviously everyone wants to make more money, mm-hmm. but like that's the one you want. I remember when I heard you were leaving and for what it was for, it's like, sometimes I feel proud of people I don't know. Like, I don't know if you've ever had that experience yeah. like, a, or people that I barely know. Like I have a friend who's a stand up, and one day I hope to have him on here. Um, so I won't say his name just in case, you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't show up and then they're like oh you're name dropping um but uh, who I do I know I've known for a long time but like I wouldn't say we're close or anything like that but like you know I consider him a friend but I'm so proud of him when I see him on like you know uh the comedy channel I was flipping channels and there he was doing stand-up and I, I, was like, I, know we were talking. I, was, yeah. I was like oh my god that's so fucking cool that yeah. you're there um it actually oh, not we're talking about, okay. I also had that experience with the person you're thinking yeah. of too um and it's that sort of like I had nothing to do with this I am not responsible for it anyway but I'm so proud of you for accomplishing that and when I heard you were leaving for this it was the same deal it was like oh man you're leaving for your dream like that's the fucking dream is yeah. to leave your fucking grind for the thing that you love so um one of the reasons that I wanted you on here was because you're like I mean you know, someone I admire for that reason, like you, you hustle. So the question becomes, and one of the questions I was asking, um, my buddy Dan, who I, uh, was, is on the first podcast was like, what, what is it that motivates you? You know, is it the, the need, like, do you need a deadline? You know, do you need to be, you're saying before you, you, you're doing it for someone else. It's Mm -hmm. a lot easier to hit that spot Yeah. when you're hitting that spot. Like, is it because you're not letting people down or have you gotten to the point now where your own stuff has its own weight of, I don't want to let anyone down now too. Like, where do you find, which side of that is, is more your drive? I think it's still towards making sure that I don't let anybody else down for now. But with the work that I'm doing currently, a lot of the projects that I'm doing, even though it's something that's requested, there's no guidance to it. It's just, Hey, figure out how to do this thing, which I love. Like I love learning that way. Yeah. So now I have these projects that are kind of my babies and I'm kind of like, okay, but now it's like, my project but within this company and so now I can't let this company down by letting my projects go down so it's this weird in between at this point at at about like the five week mark of this crazy (laughs) journey Um, but for the most part I'd say because I still have other contracts that I had that I had signed prior to this one so I'm doing a show at Tarragon. I just did a couple of shows cool. with a small company called Frog in Hand um, from Mississauga. So those things still motivate me. Like I still have to make sure that I show up at this place, I do the work, and then I hit my deadlines and that the show goes off without a hitch. Because for me, the flow of the show is one of the most important things. If, if, if I can make sure that the show runs smoothly, even if it's just a sound design, 
then I know that I'm doing my job right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But so really my, my motivation still currently is, oh, you have these deadlines, but it's in an industry that I love and it's in the, with the work that I love doing. So it's like, because these deadlines mean that this show is successful, this artist gets to do their work properly, this designer gets to get their work on the stage and looking and, and, and feeling the way that it's supposed to. Um, these emerging artists are getting the training they need to be people that I want to work with. Right. So it, it, it's all people that I don't want to let down because I want to work with them or I want them to work with me uh, continually through totally. the future. Yeah. That's wicked. I mean, I, like I find the whole, I, the, your, this whole journey that you're on, I'm sort of fascinated by like watching from a distance, like, you know, just to see where you end up. Cause I remember when I went to came, was it banana boys that I came to see you on? At, was that the Summerworks one? Um, uh, where you were, was that the one with the, I know you, you came to see Cowboy versus Samurai. That's Soul the one. Pepper. That's the one. Yeah. It was Cal- Yeah. 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 I, rem- I remember that one. At, okay. Wait, Summerworks and Soul Pepper, different. Different things. Right. Yeah. Cause okay. I'm learning with everyone. Yeah. Right? Um, the I remember sitting in the audience and it was the same sort of thing. Like I brought my mom because you know that, who, I else, <laughs> who else was I going to bring? Yeah. Um, and uh, and we were sitting there and and uh, and just watching you up on stage. Like it was great because I had no experience with you as an actor. It was quite, mm-hmm. there was this moment of like before the play started, I was like I I hope he's good. Like <laughs> I don't know. You know yeah. like you you know how many it's times? Very scary. Because <laughs> that, that, that yeah. was your first. Was that your first big role like that, on stage in that sense? That's probably that was probably the biggest stage that I've been on. Uh, when it comes to acting and yeah it was a juicy role because it was I mean I played a lead in a fringe musical so that was huge um, that was for Shotgun Wedding um, directed by Catherine Hernandez gotta say shout out to Catherine <laughs> current artistic director of B Current Performing Arts but uh, yeah Soul Pepper was the, the biggest stage that I'd been on and, and that institution is crazy sure money wise in terms of the budget that you can play with it, it very much feels like you're spoiled when, when you're there in a very uh, good way, like a good feeling way. But yeah, that was the biggest thing. So it was, it was, it was in terms of like nerves, it's probably the same as any other show. I get nervous, excited right before an opening and I've been doing it long enough that I know the people that are going to show up and yeah. even the people that I don't, I, you know, I know audiences and, and how to play, especially with comedy, I can play that right. um, and have so much fun with it. But, no, I totally get what you mean. It's like if you have a friend, <laughs> like, hey, yeah. I don't know if you're good at this or not. Well, that's sort of yeah. the thing, right? And it wasn't like, because I always, I mean, you kind of have a sense of people, you know? You think like, like, oh, this person, like, he's competent. Like, there's no way that he's in this situation and he's not going to be any right. good. But because you've never seen someone, you're always like, I wonder what, because I also didn't know the play, obviously, right? Yeah. So, didn't know what you, I'm like, is he going to be dramatic? Is he going to be, um, and then you came out and you just like fucking murdered it. <laughs> like, just murdered it. And it was crazy because I was sort of... I, I don't think I understood what I was coming to see in the sense of the the size of the mm-hmm. show. Like, I think I knew I knew where it was and all that sort of stuff, but, like, you just assume that, you, I mean, I think I've always, it's my own inferior inferiority complex where I'm like, well, I know you, so how could it be that big, you know? Right, like, right. that kind of thing, right? Yeah. And, uh, and I remember thinking, like, holy fuck, like, this is, like, amazing. And I was curious how you looked at the other side, like, how was it, you're doing it for almost two weeks, right? And it was something yeah, it was, it was something I mean, a fairly it, it long was run, right? two weeks. It's it's really a month, yeah. but we were what's called in rep with another show, so we kind of alternate nights. Yeah. So really, like two weeks worth of shows over the course of like three and a half. And what was yeah. like? What was the moment? Like there had to be a moment. Like I mean, I'm sure there were many <laughs> moments, but like 
a moment on stage where you kind of caught, like, did you break at any point, kind of catch yourself looking? Because, like, it's been so long since I've been on stage. And, right. like, the DG special, we're now doing it mm-hmm. at the rec room. And there were, because I'm, you know, just a stupid sidekick or whatever, there are numerous points where I looked out into the audience and was like, holy fuck, like, I haven't been on stage in, I mean, it's got to be 20 years, yeah. right? So did you, were, is there a point where you looked out and you went, holy fuck, like, I'm on this stage, at like, in this show, and, like, actually was able to take it in, or did it kind of blur through Kind of both. I'd say that the moment really hit even before the audience was in the house. I think it was the first time that we were on the stage and saw the set uh, and we were running through Tech Week and sort of seeing the lights. And that is kind of the moment that that really hit. It's like, oh, I am in a soul pepper season. Like, this is what? Like, this never happens for someone like me. And that that was sort of the moment because once you're on stage and and the audience is in the house you can't actually see them like if you would you really have to look or it has to be a dark like lighting cue in order for you to see the faces but all this it's just lights in your face and you're so focused on your scene partner and and the world that you're creating in your mind and on the stage with all of the set around you that you don't really take notice and even if you do you can't really like differentiate yeah, the faces yeah. and you can't see exactly you're not who waving it is. at people you're like yeah. hey mom I see you yeah, yeah yeah so you know there's a bit of a security net in that in order in terms of um, of uh, not being so nervous that it wrecks you but at the same time what you notice more uh, are the reactions so because especially because it's a comedy right and, yeah, yeah. and my character Chester was very much the the comic relief and the setup for a lot of that you show you were like, the last man yeah like yeah. He, and he's just this crazy kooky character and so if you try as an actor not to have those expectations in your head where it's like all right well this worked in this show so it's gonna work for the rest of the shows because then all of a sudden you're performing with as if you're setting up a joke and then it falls flat and then now you're stuck right so it's always never played to be funny it's just play to play the, the truth, play the story, and because it's written well and because you're performing it well, that's where the laughs come from. Right. Um, from those kinds of moments. So, but it's that's that's the part that's actually, I think, a little more nerve-wracking is when something that you knew worked the other night doesn't work the next night and you start to question why didn't it work for a very brief moment, yeah. a very split second, then you got to go right back into the show. Throws and you off. Going. Yeah. So that, I think, is more of a, that is more of a distraction or... Uh, or could create those kinds of moments then sort of uh, being like just stuck and frozen on stage because there's people. Because you obviously can't see them. Yeah. Like you can hear them for sure. Or you can not hear them when they're not reacting. That's uh, that's even worse. That's the loop, yeah. right? Um, so it's interesting. You met, you mentioned the the, the uh, that you're a person of color earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the questions that I, I definitely I want to sort of follow through with, with all the people that I talk about is the idea of community and mm-hmm. um, the community that you like drawing on it and being a part of it and so we were talking uh in the first one about the comedy community of toronto it's very i find that it's very um welcoming and opening and all that sort of thing mostly because i'm not a comedian and so the fact that i know a lot of folks in it and am you know comfortable in it and all that sort of stuff always seems sort of amazing to me because you know they're all so talented and like technically i'm just this dude who hangs around um but you as a person of color and being in what you know we were we were mentioning is a predominantly or has been a predominantly you know Caucasian um, yeah. environment. Like, how do you, what's your what's your feel of the community? How much do you lean on it? How much do you need it? Like, how much does it motivate? I think it it it's definitely a big motivator, knowing that especially the position that I'm in and the company that I'm with and the leader that I'm that I'm mentoring under. Th- these are people, and this is a company that 
believes in getting getting that change to happen faster. And the way that they do it is just by doing it. Yeah. The conversation has been happening for so long. And I'd say in probably about the past two, two and a half years, it has turned over fairly rapidly. There's still very, there's lots of problems. It's very still, it's still problematic uh, in certain regards. Um, but it's making steps, slow steps, but quicker or sooner than I thought that it would. Um, so when it comes to creating these opportunities and and providing training and providing um, just knowledge and information and conversation about uh, diversity and equity and um, those it's 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 a little bit hard to kind of articulate but it's the feeling is that it's not hopeless and that is something that is has become more and more apparent the more that I do this work and the more that I try my best to be an advocate for it um, Right now, I'm, I'm looking through a lot of um, applications for um, what we call the Recommender Grants for Theater Creators, which Factory is one of the recommenders, and seeing actually how diverse that crop of applicants are was very uh, surprising, but it was also very reassuring. Um, so when it comes to that community, I lean on it in a way that allows me, oddly enough, to support them. So I know who I can look to, and there are now um, more uh, women of color in arts leadership positions in theater, which is amazing. And those are people that I can look up to and that I can call at any time and, and look to for advice or for guidance um, and mentorship, which is really cool. Um, so it's, you know, it's a tough battle still, but at the same time, because... I'm in a company that has been fighting that battle and has been sort of the forefront for it and um, and pushing more and more for it in their in the way that they program their seasons. Like our season last year was called Beyond the Great White North. Take it for what it is, yep. but it's exactly yep. what it sounds like, depending on who you are. That, yeah, uh, totally. And and they stuck to their word, and that was very much what was wonderful about that season, and and um, which is how how I got involved with Banana Boys, but the community the communities that sort of all have to work together and i and i really do mean all of them like it's not a it's not an us versus them i mean we get othered more often than we would like but we need everyone like it's it's not just oh we'll just push ourselves and there's no support like we have a lot of support we have a lot of allies and i think as long as we continue to work to realize where the balance isn't and we sort of work with that. I'm speaking a lot of generic terms, mainly because it's really hard to wrap my head around it. Sure. It's like, you know what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And you've had the conversations. And all that's left is to do it. But no one's doing it. Yeah. Like, like, there's, there's no more steps. Like, there's no more, what do I need to do next? It's like, you just have to hire them. Yeah. You just have to let them tell their stories. You need to give them the space. And recognize that, hey, that might mean that some people won't have that space this year and being okay with that because you know I, it's not a it's not a vengeance thing it's not a revenge thing but it's a realization that like hey like we've without having any real say in it have been giving up those spaces this whole time totally yeah yeah and it's sort of that thing of like you know as a person of color um you know you you're on that other side of it so like you don't get apart because you're a person of color and then 
and you walk away from that being, you know, frustrated and there's not enough parts for, you know, um, folks that aren't, you know, uh, that Caucasian norm mm-hmm. or whatever it is. Right. But then you flip it and now it's like, well, we want more of, uh, people who aren't the standard that we've always had. Yeah. And so then that standard gets, um, frustrated. It was, it, it's so, it, it's such a weird thing cause it's a natural feeling to be frustrated by a lack of opportunity. Sure. And it's so strange to watch people be frustrated by a sudden lack of opportunity. You I know agree. what I mean? I agree. Um, I was having a conversation with someone and they were talking about, um, being frustrated by that very thing, going to auditions and, you know, losing parts to, um, you know, not, uh, and they were in no way, shape or form. It wasn't like, fuck Pete, like diversity. I hate this shit. Yeah. Like it was just like, you know, I know I'm not getting parts because they're aiming for diverse, uh, roles. And I, and you know, there was part of me that was completely unsympathetic because it's like, well, yeah, but those people haven't been, and I don't mean those people, but like yeah. folks of, of color and minorities haven't gotten those roles ever. So like you're just fucked because you happen to be a white male at the worst time to be a white male kind because of everyone fucked it up for you. If everyone had been cool and, you know, been, if all white males have been cool in the past, we'd all be on an equal footing and so everyone would have an equal chance. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we're, and it's, and that's just the way the world works. Like you can't even be, you almost can't even be mad about it. I understand the frustration but I was, what I ended up saying to him was like, if you listen to the guy who organized the Charlottesville um, thing, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it's lit. He literally organized it because he didn't get a nursing job because they gave it to a woman of color Mm -hmm. and he was incapable of seeing that he was not the most qualified candidate. Um, and could only see that that's why they did it. Yeah. And so it's, I, I mean, it's, it's amazing to have, um, you know, people like yourself who are in those roles and now can, you know, shepherd it forward and, and, uh, and bring that back to the community. Um, do you feel, and I know you've only been doing it for five, five weeks, but even if you think about like going back a little bit, like to some of the other things that you've been doing in the last, like, do you feel that you're saying, I mean, as you were saying, it's not hopeless now, but do you see the change yet? Or are you, um, like vis- visibly on stage? Yeah. It, it's, it's happening. It's happening, which is, which is a beautiful thing to see the companies that Toronto, the th- Toronto theater companies that have been around for a while. So like theater past Mirai, Tarragon theater, factory theater, um, the sort of Bathurst corridor of theaters. Yeah. <laughs> the the change is there. It's in the seasons. It's in who's in the artistic leadership positions, and um, and it's it's in the the shows themselves. The the storytellers. Because it's one thing to cast diverse. I'd say that is probably the easiest thing that you can do, is cast diverse. Right. The harder thing to do is to tell diverse stories. To tell stories from the perspective that isn't Shakespeare. For fuck's sake. Like, I'm so done with Shakespeare. I've been... I've never really been into Shakespeare. You haven't been... I'm a you're bad, not sh- bad theater kid. I've always been a bad theater kid. I was always interested in the new stuff. Whatever yeah. that was. It wasn't even necessarily about um, whether it was diverse or not. I just didn't care. Yeah, there's 400-year-old stories that, like, cool, yeah, they're very clever. They're beautifully written. And honestly, I like working on Shakespeare shows. Like, as an actor, I love working the text. But wow, do I never, ever want to program it. Like, ever. Sure. I just don't care. Like it's, it's, it's been done so much and you can only flip it so many times and sure there, it can show relevance and be contemporary based on things that are happening in the world. But so can the stories you've never heard before that got displaced because someone wanted to do another run of Othello. By the way, I yeah. love Othello. <laughs> well, it's like every time I see Romeo and Juliet, I'm just like, are you fucking kidding me? I'm like, Especially I'm so tired of people being in love. Like, yeah. But that's the thing that one of the, I always, I, I always, um, cla- uh, uh, chalk up, 
people's love of Shakespeare entirely to how you learned it. You know what I sure. mean? Like yeah. at the end of the day, um, you either like Shakespeare because you had a great teacher who taught you how to how what it means, or you or you didn't, and then you can appreciate it for its its whatever. And I had a I had a really great drama teacher once who like really broke it down like from the actor's perspective, like what the text means and all that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. And so now I look at Shakespeare and I think like. Shakespeare's fucking awesome. I never want... I, I have no real interest in seeing it as it's written. Yeah. But the stories are so... Or at least always feel so universal that the thing I love the most is the is the flip. But not mm. the flip in the sense of like, I'm going to put a... You know, I'm going to have a black Hamlet. It's yeah. not like... But like to put Hamlet into a, a, an environment where, you know, the characters are just naturally diverse because yeah. that's the... You know, because it's so... I find them so universal that you can... You don't have to have it be um it's not even a, a diversity thing it's just this story could be anybody and yeah. it doesn't fucking matter what you're saying about casting and stuff yeah um and i know i've discussed i've been struggling not struggling but like trying to add stuff of that nature like i've been trying to write really not vague but like without um without that aspect of it one way or the other so like theoretically you could make it like trying to make these stories universal in the sense of like it doesn't matter who plays them they're just people and emotions and, yeah. and events right um but it's i i always find myself picturing it in my head like i picture it um as not as white people um but just i picture it as myself right and yeah, I, I, have you ever seen the show detroiters no okay first of all fucking hilarious okay. um such so absurd but so fucking funny like if you like that workaholics kind of vibe okay however there's this like amazing running gag so it's a white guy and a black guy in detroit they're they're in this like really shitty advertising agency they've inherited from uh the white guy's dad um and they make like all over the jeweler uh com- type commercials <laughs> right like that that grade right yeah um and the black guy every time he pitches an idea the characters are always black mm-hmm. and they're always black because he cannot imagine anything but himself and it's this it's this running joke of like um he'll talk about a character and then talk about their like ebony skin or something like that right and the other guy's like or they could be anything you know what i mean like it's that idea so like okay before we go to a break as a last question when you when you're doing your own stuff do you picture your characters as uh you know your background or do you picture them like how do you picture in your head like where has imagination work for you it's so interesting because you asked me this question, I don't think I've ever thought of it from a cultural standpoint. By which I mean, I just put myself in there. If I'm writing a main character, which is I should write more, I don't do it enough. But when I do write, or even if I'm playing a video game, or I'm creating a character, it's just me. I just happen to be Filipino. But I don't really think of the character as that. In fact, like my dream would be to have plays where you have a full cast of completely diverse characters and that includes white people because that's part of the diversity it's sure. about everybody but you have that and it's not about their culture or have have like a full filipino family on stage and it's not about them being filipino have like a, a chinese couple on stage and have a really awesome romance and it has nothing to do with the fact that they're chinese it's just that they happen to be it's it's yeah. and i feel like that's the way i would that's always the the way i try to um, like that's the way I try to write I guess in the sense of like I don't want it to be about my particular experience although it comes from my particular experience I, I don't want to like because I there's a point where I realized that I can't write for myself to make everything you know what I mean like obviously ultimately you want yourself to be the person like creating but like very rarely does that ever happen and there was a switch at one point where I went oh well I need to write less uh, specific because I would get into these like fucking you know I'd be writing like the character gets up and goes up the stairs and while they're going up the stairs they're dragging their hands along the banister and you're like 
oh fuck like an actor's <laughs> got to do something yeah. in this like I can't dictate everything yeah. um, but it's weird because I caught myself thinking that way where I was like I'd be like okay well this oh shit this character's me and then that character's the love interest and uh, for whatever reason I'm thinking of that particular person while I'm writing this and so that person's white and, yeah. and I'm like oh but I have no interest in this being a whole like there, there's no there's, so I, I started thinking a lot about it which is why I was interested to ask you because yeah. it's something that I, I always ask people it's like how do you especially when I saw it articulated in that show that way where mm-hmm. I was just like Oh, fu- like everyone does think about themselves as that person. So yeah. I was curious to see how you, how you came out, what side you came out. Yeah. Um, okay. We are going to take a quick break. Cool. Uh, we're going to go into the final segment. I got a couple more questions for you, but we're going to take a quick break. Go to my, my one and only sponsor. Um, and when we come back, uh, a couple more questions and then we're going to wrap this bad boy up. Um, hang tight. We'll be right back. Hey guys, I'm Nikki Strachan and this is Running Up the Downstairs. And it's brought to you by Josh Finkelman's Instagram and Twitter account at, at KJoshRadio. FYI, he told me to write my own script and he just fucking edited this. So, uh, yeah, KJosh Radio. Have a good night. Peace out. And we are back. Um, so, yeah, uh, that's my one advertiser. Hope you guys all, uh, all like that. Uh, so we're back with Michelon Rodriguez, yes, um, whose official title is so many words that I can't. <laughs> remember them all but he is let me remember the assistant apprentice. no apprentice that's i i can't consistently mix up <laughs> apprentices apprentice artistic director director of the factory theater yeah. which is so fucking dope <laughs> um but yeah so we uh we were talking about motivations and all that sort of shit before and uh one of the things that i have this sort of personal theory though i i don't test it out all that much in my own personal life but um female companionship or a relationship as it may be depending on your personal choices um do you find because i know you you were in a relationship at one point um Mm -hmm. in the last year and 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 uh ladies now he's not um (laughs) but uh but do you find that that takes something off your shoulder so to speak like being in a relationship makes it easier to focus on the career stuff or is it the opposite i i think it i think i think it can go either way depending on how your relationship's doing. <laughs> but I'd say that during the work and while I'm doing the work, it doesn't really preoccupy my mind, but it's after. Like, it's, it's, on, the, it's on the drive home, or it's like when you, get, when you get home and you're like, oh, it would be great to be able to share my day with someone that I really love. Um, and so that's, that's sort of the quote-unquote hard part. It's not even that difficult. It's not like it's something that like <laughs> rains on my heart and my brain when I get home. But You're so emo. <laughs> so emotional. <laughs> but but um, I do think that, you know, especially with this work that I'm doing with this job change and, and everything else that's been changing um, in my life, that it is like the one area that's just like this big question mark and this kind of like, you know, void that's very <laughs> obvious when you think about it but it's not something that like really racks my brain um but i do think that it, it can be easier if you have a very supportive partner um and i don't know some people say don't date in your industry i'm kind of like i find it hard to date out of the industry because i'm like <laughs> i'm just not interested in what you're doing i think the phrase yeah. you're looking for is don't shit where you eat but um, Agree. yeah <laughs> <laughs> but i think i think there is there is a bit of ease in knowing that you you can have someone that you can that you can share these things with and, and share your experiences with and get advice from, uh, you know, someone that you can com- completely trust. And I'd argue that I have friends that I, I can do that with, which is probably why it doesn't feel as bad as maybe someone else 
in my position might yeah, might yeah. feel. Um, but yeah, I think I think it just depends if if you have a partner that really understands the work or at least has the ability to support it in a way that's not just oh that's nice where it's like they can contribute and and they can have um, opinions about it and and have conversations with them uh, about the work then I think that uh, or or have the ability to go stop talking about work like yeah, let's like turn your brain off for a second and just enjoy my company like I brain think that shit in. Yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think I think that there's definitely a comfort in that but um but I I think at least for me currently it's not something that I think about while I'm doing the work um but definitely afterwards, it might be something that's like, oh, you know, it'd be nice. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. okay. So let me let me tie back to something you mentioned earlier. Sure. But um, you also write. I'm I'm a writer, mm-hmm. um, and you also write. And you said you said something that I say way too often, which is I haven't written nearly as much as I should. <laughs> so here's my question. Yeah. So the question becomes: Are you are you not writing because you're so fucking busy, which would make perfect sense, mm-hmm. um, or are you not writing for lack of ideas, or are you not writing for you know, C, D, E, F right. reasons. I, busy is the number one reason, um, for sure. I always have the aspiration to do it when I get home. Uh, and some days uh, more than others, but definitely, especially because I'm working on different projects currently, it's hard to find the time to do it. Um, and if I do try to do it, I that means I neglect all the stuff that I should be doing at home, like laundry or dishes or that kind of thing. Um, so it's not for lack of ideas because the words that have been going across my mind for the better part of fuck four years now, I think, um, is sci-fi hip hop musical. Oh, I'm there. I already bought a ticket. (laughs) Sold. Yeah. And it's only recently that I, I, but I've been trying to wrap my head around a story behind it. I know that it has to be politically driven. Um, and I recently had, um, coffee with this uh, amazing dance artist named Jen Hum and, she said, you should just go to the Philippines. I'm like, oh, but I don't want to, like, with Duterte there and, like, the oh. shit that's going down. And, like, every time I think about going back to the Philippines, like, I haven't been there since I was in grade three. That's the one and only time I've been there. But every time I think about going back, something shitty is happening in the country that, like, I might not live through or I might not be able to get home from. But Jen made a really good point in, the, in that, like, hey, if you're going political, like, that's kind of the best place to be is, like, be on the ground. Like, have it's not really a war but it's kind of close to it and ain't friendly and it's not friendly but maybe there's something there maybe being in it as opposed to just reading about it from afar will give you some sort of insight into some sort of story because ideally I'd love to make hip-hop sci-fi musical happen um, in a story in a kind of parable or analogy way that kind of District 9 did sure. where it's about genocide but it's through aliens yeah, yeah it's, totally. you know that kind of story so i think i think there is something that i can a story that i can find there that is culturally relevant to my background but allows hip-hop sci-fi musical to work and my my hesitation has always been hip-hop musical because anytime i see hip-hop in theater i cringe a little bit because they <laughs> very rarely do it right dude step it up is a national fucking treasure <laughs> Well, I national would, I will argue that Hamilton is an international <laughs> track. Have you seen it? I've listened to the soundtrack a million times, oh. and it is the first soundtrack where I uh, that is a hip hop musical where I went 
probably about for the first verse, like, I don't really know what's happening here. This seems kind of corny. And then right into the rest of the song, I was like, holy cow, they did their fucking research. And I sort of... well is amazing. Well, this is yeah. the thing. I, I, I vi- I'm not a musical fan, yeah. um, which I I went to see the Meatloaf uh, musical, Bad at Hell. Bad at Hell, yeah. Cool. Uh, mini review. Oh, fucking God. <laughs> Um, it looked amazing, and it was one of the worst written things I've ever in my entire life fucking sat through, but it looked fucking cool. It sounded okay, because it was meatloaf, but it looked fucking cool, and it was written like a piece of garbage that had been picked up off the ground, lit on fire, thrown in a garbage can, and then covered, and then let loose, and then smoke signaled up in the air. It was so bad, but it looked so good. But So I don't like musicals all yeah, the This has been a mini-review by Josh. Mini-reviews, running up the downstairs pockets. Um, but yeah, so I'm not usually a fan of musicals, but when they're really good, I do, I do quite like them. Um, yeah. And Hamilton, I've been like, oh, I have to go see this because everyone's obviously fucking talking about it. But yeah. I don't want to listen to the soundtrack because I don't want to ruin the musical. So, do you know what I mean? I do. I definitely understand what you mean. But in my experience, the soundtrack has often sold me on the musical. Interesting. Hamilton, though, does have the hype where you could just wait until you see it and just have your mind blown. But I would say that I've, uh, my mind has been blown multiple times. Really? listening to that soundtrack if you really if you want to sort of split the difference because yeah. it is coming to Toronto in 2019 I don't want to wait that long <laughs> I'm going to New York for Thanksgiving so I always try the lottery when I go there because sure. they have a lottery for Hamilton tickets um, oh, no way I should try to do that and it's online then there's an app for it too because that's how crazy it is there's an app for everything there's an app for everything <laughs> but um, I forgot my train of thought that's okay Hamilton um, soundtrack Hamilton soundtrack oh yeah so the, so- the soundtrack uh, if you wanted to split the difference um, there's a great documentary on PBS called Hamilton's America, which allows you to see snippets of the show, but it oh. tells you how the creation process went. Because it didn't just like boom, start yeah, off totally. again on Broadway, right? Like it was something that had been written over, uh, essentially Lin-Manuel Miranda had read the Hamilton biography that he just sort of found at an airport yeah. and then realized how much it was like a, a hip hop beef. Like it was essentially one big battle. Oh, yeah. and, and, then he, and then that just spurned this amazing phenomena that is Hamilton so if you wanted to get a taste of the soundtrack if you wanted to see how it was made if you wanted to get previews of it that's good Hamilton's America PBS documentary if you can find it is is that sold the show for me even more and now I really 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 want to see it interesting yeah it's one of the weird things I'm, I'm very much the same like I don't want to, sometimes I'll be like I don't want to watch the trailer for a yeah, movie because yeah. I just want to be completely taken in by it but I don't know, man. I could, I, you could flip a coin on this, and I would agree with you. Well, yeah. it's funny. It's the same thing as the what's it called? The fucking uh, the Harry Potter uh, pl- stage play, the Cursed Child, the Cursed Child or, yeah. that she wrote, right? Yeah. That J.K. Rowling wrote. I, I have not. I won't read it until I'm like I don't, I've, I've heard it's a shitty play, but I've. I mean, maybe it's not J.K. Rowling. If you're listening to this, it's 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 like her stamp of approval, but it is very much a fan fiction. And this is the yeah. thing, right? So I like I haven't read it. I'll go see it when it comes to Toronto, if it comes to Toronto, yeah. but like. I'm like not. I don't want to read the script, the the book because I'm like, yeah. I'll it'll ruin it for me. But um, to what was I was gonna? Oh, the hip hop, uh, the, the hip hop <laughs> sci fi. That I like. That's such a fucking wicked idea. And it's funny because it's funny that your friend suggested like going to the Philippines because like if there was ever a like you know. Um, country other than the United States right now to take a like a, a, a philosophical political sort of thing from the Philippines is definitely there, yeah. one and you could probably talk about both of them yeah. but um, I, my first thought would be that you don't need to go to the Philippines to be able to write like a sci-fi thing based on like the Philippines yeah um, but I mean also 
if you want to, you could, I guess. Um, <laughs> I, I have this, I have this long-standing idea of I came up with the university about. Uh, I don't want to tell you, but it basically involves not you. I don't want to tell you. Right, right. I look. I looked at the microphone when I said that because I was thinking <laughs> of my audience, who's probably not really there. But I don't want to give the idea out because it's a it's a dope idea. But I've told. I think I've told you about it before. But anyways, it's around the Mona Lisa. That's all I'll say. Um, but I've had this full idea for the longest time that I need to live in. I need to live in France, in Paris to right. understand. Uh, the city of Paris to be able to write this particular idea and I almost pulled the trigger a couple of times like to go and, and live there for like a month not mm-hmm. for like a long time I barely speak French but that I sort of want to like get my French better um, but it's that same sort of thing it's like yeah. do you need to be immersed in it to be able to write about it and I don't have an answer to that yeah I don't know if I do either I think I think the research can definitely be done but I think one thing that you probably miss are actual first-person accounts and interviewing those people. You get a lot out of an interview. Sure. Um, as you're probably as we're learning right we're, now. We're all learning together. But there are things that this, they just don't come across in correspondence and I would argue don't really even come across if you were to Skype somebody or FaceTime them or whatever, that there's just something about being with a person in a room talking about a specific issue and you can just feel the vibe in the room. You can feel if it's like tension that's got to be cut or if it's something that uh, brings them a sense of comfort or brings them a sense of extreme joy. Those things don't come across as much in just straight up text or video. There's just something about being with the person and hearing them talk about what drives them or what scares them that can give you so much to write about, to create characters, to create worlds with. That I, I think I think that is sort of my main would be my main driver if I really wanted to pull the trigger on on getting my way out to the Philippines yeah um, to do something like that uh, but it, it's 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 not a it's not a priority by any means I think I think I think I gotta actually start writing it first because those that's as far as I've gotten I was gonna say it's not, it's not <laughs> it ain't cheap neither yeah um, but it's so weird like it's it's funny that because uh, I find I can't write about Toronto like or I can write about Toronto but I don't write. I have to be really general. Like, I'll, I'll make up... I, I try not to use street names or, like... You know, it's just... Whenever it's a city, it's always the city. There's always... Right. You know what I mean? Because I find that, like... And it's so weird because... And maybe it's my... I don't have a huge affinity for Canadian literature. Just... I mean, there's tons of great Canadian literature out there. But just... I have my own prejudices against sure. uh, Canadian literature. I, I still think of it as, like, Sex in the Prairies. But that's because... Right. They made me li- read Margaret Lawrence uh, instead of Margaret Atwood, who was so fucking dope. Like if 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 I had read Margaret Atwood in high school rather than a couple like last year, I probably would have a completely flipped version. I, they just gave me the wrong Margaret. Right. Um, but um, it's so weird because I find that like to put Bathurst Street into a into a paragraph makes me immediately stop caring about what I'm writing in the weirdest sort of way. Like, weird. and it's such a strange thing because it it feels. Like I'm, it feels like I'm cheating. Is is actually what it what it comes down to? If I if I can put the idea into like a an actual feeling, I always feel like I'm 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 cheating it because I'm just looking outside. Like right. you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's such an abnormal or not abnormal. It's just such a weird um, like hang up that I have. Yeah. Um, and I've been f- trying to force myself out of it because I mean I'm I love Toronto. I'm a huge fan of this city. I I I 
can't imagine myself really and nor have I made any effort to not mm. live here and even when I lived just north of it which I don't like to talk about um, <laughs> I was always of the city I was wanting to be in the city so right. it's such a strange thing for me to be like I can't write about it like I write Queen Street or Bathurst Street or Union Station or whatever and immediately my brain goes like oh you're a fucking hack That's totally and then I'm out you know like, yeah. and it's like okay let's and then but I don't go somewhere to learn another place to write like about New York from a distance so it's let me so that I'll we'll finish up on that question do yeah. you find that like as an artist you need distance from something to be able to capture it ooh that's a good question I think there is as the siren sort of blasts behind man, me man I can't fall asleep without that shit I know streetcar comes by now yeah uh, and these hopefully let's hope that picks up we want a little ambiance <laughs> uh, we were gonna do this before you answer your question we, while the sirens are blaring in the background we were gonna do this at the factory uh, but you, there's a there's a preview there tonight yeah yeah Trace is previewing yeah, tonight so, so I didn't wanna I didn't want our podcast to be disturbed by the patrons. I probably should have. I probably should have closed the the door. Anyway, that's you were okay. Say, <laughs> yeah, you were I mean, say, the sirens. Are, that was us skillfully uh, killing time while sirens passed by us. <laughs> it may be my I, second podcast, but that's okay. I got chops. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think there is a value to distancing yourself from something that had happened to to write. I think there's value in writing about it right away. Uh, and when I mean distance, I, I I include time with that. So whether it's to be physically away from it or to distance yourself from it in, in terms of time, I think there's definitely value in that because it allows you to process what actually happened. But there's also immediate value in what your reaction is. And then reaction you really have to capture uh, as soon as it happens or, or as close to it as possible. So I think that you will get the emotion of it. You will get sort of the heart of how it affects you with something that you write immediately. But that in my experience, in my very limited writing experience, that has always turned into something that's either stream of consciousness or just like absolute jumbly crap. Like it's just, Oh, here's all my feelings on a piece of paper. Yeah. But the distance the be able to time wise, uh, to be able to do that, to be able to process it allows you to sort of refine your thoughts and to, and to think about why you reacted the way you did physically. I think, um, that being away, it only makes sense if it was something that you were already ingrained in or that you you had lived in and then distancing yourself from that physically. Like it doesn't like, that's why when I talk about going to the Philippines, like writing from it, writing about it from a distance doesn't make sense to me to get the true, to really capture whatever, whatever it is I'm trying to find out there if I ever go. Um, because I just haven't been there, but I think there would be value in being there, living whatever it is that I want to live and then talking to the people that I want to talk, coming back and then not writing about it right away and sort of combining that thing of distancing myself with time and with physical distance, um, still doing like reactionary pieces, but only for myself, just so I can remember almost just journaling it, but then to create something outside of that, like there is value in just giving yourself that time to just live life in general. Because then you get those experiences that allow you to process what it is that you just that what it is that you are distancing yourself from, um, with a new lens. It allows you to see it in a different way. Uh, one of the I, I saw I was at a reading um, for this young playwright sound designer named Maddie Bautista, was, uh, and I feel so bad about forgetting the name of the play, but it's one that I want to support in any way that I can. But she doesn't feel like it's something that she can write right now because she's put so much into it. And she's such a hustler. She does so many things that she's kind of feeling tired and just needs to recover and reset. Um, 
so there and so she kind of wants to put it away for a year and in my head I'm like no you got to start writing it now but the more I that I would think about it and uh, Nina was at that reading as well and so she sort of told Maddie like hey like taking that year off is not a bad idea it allows you to just, just live life just yeah. straight up live life get all these experiences so that when you get back to the work rather than thinking of how to make these characters live you've lived so much in that one year that it'll just come out in the writing that you do um, so distance in time distance in physical location I think those are both valuable things to do for writing even though the impulse is I gotta finish this draft as soon as I can and if you're in a deadline I totally get it but if you have the a time to afford where you can not write and just live I think you you will probably find that the writing is richer and even more clear and then things will probably make more sense and you might be able to look at your piece and go oh these pieces don't make any sense yeah. of it at all but now that I've had these kinds of experiences I can implant those into it instead yeah, so I find the drawers sometimes, it's funny, like, that you say that you were like, don't put it away, don't put it away, like, sometimes the drawer is the clearest way of seeing, like, what you actually have, mm-hmm. uh, my, my biggest issue with that is, like, I'll pull something out that I wrote six months ago, or a year ago, or two years ago, and go, holy fuck, like, why did I stop writing this, like, this, this is actually really good, like, I, yeah. this is way better than I remember this being, um, because in the moment I can't see it, and then later on, but then the struggle I find in those cases is then recapturing the same voice, because yeah. you're you're a different person yeah. now. You're you've you've had all those life experiences, so you have that stuff. Mm-hmm. But like, what you liked about it, and my my process always this is what ends up putting me in a loop is that I'll write something, shit, put it away, come back to six months later. Oh my god, this is really great. Write more of it. Oh, this is shit. So yeah. Put it away. We come back six months later, and like you know, potentially over the course of my life, I'll end up finishing something <laughs> one of those things like that. Yeah. Um, but that's part of why I'm doing all this is because like I wanna. I want to kick my face into um, actually like continuing with things rather than just like putting them in a drawer. So it's so funny that like someone who does have that hustle is like struggling with the idea of like, I'm like, I love the drawer. The drawer is my favorite. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. Real last thing we're going to leave on. I'm going to, because I, I love the, the idea of, of that you are a mentor to people and that you're, um, you're, you are being mentored yourself, but you're also mentoring um, folks around you. Um, I find you very, um, inspiring myself so if you had two pieces of advice Mm -hmm. to give anybody who's struggling with this sort of with with what you're good at what would those two pieces of advice be oh uh just do it is number one just do the fucking work just stop no excuses just do it but the other part too is make time for procrastination Uh it's probably my favorite lesson from a design class at, at york was make the time to procrastinate and because it's valuable, because when you procrastinate, you're just not focusing on what it is that you were doing, but your brain's still processing it. And then you get to have fun doing other shit. So do the work, but make time for procrastination. All right. Do the work, but also fuck off. Yeah. Um, I like it. I love it. That should be a that should be like a fucking t-shirt. On the front, do the work. On the back, it's just fuck off. Um, Mickey, dude, I'm so happy that you were able to do this with me. Um, yeah, and, I'm, and I'm honored that you were able to be on this with me. And um, you know what? We're going to bring you back at some point because I'm going to just keep doing this. I would fucking, love to be back. For sure. And we'll we'll see. How long are you doing the, the factory thing for? Well, uh, officially it's 40 weeks. Yeah. But... 40? 40. That's amazing. Yeah, so almost a year. So technically my experience there would come to a close at some time in July. But... 
you know, we've been talking. Who knows what could happen? Fuck it, I man. might be there longer. So we'll that, see. we're gonna bring you back next summer. We'll see how it all goes. Because I mean, we'll I'll see you before. Yeah, that. But yeah. I would love to. I wanna I wanna follow yeah, this story because you're fucking the best. Um, so thank you so much. Oh, plug something. What are you? You got yeah, so much shit. Absolutely. As I'd say three things. I'd, if this podcast gets up in time, uh, <laughs> Trace at Factory Theater, written by Jeff Ho, who is an amazing artist, uh, is running from November 16th to December 3rd. Uh, again, we, might, we, we yeah. might make that. We might yeah, make that. It I'm might ho- be there. I'm hopeful. Um, well, maybe not, but if it, if magic happens, then November 19th is the Shen Development Series Festival over at Soul Pepper. That sounds totally cool. That's, Never going to happen. Yeah. I mean, not, the show The show happening. of the festival happened, You're but not gonna have a chance you, you to probably see missed it. it already. But let me tell you, I think it was great. Um, <laughs> I think it was great, too. I think it was I, great. <laughs> and then the, uh, the other show that I'm working on is Girls Like That um, uh, at Tarragon Theater. Uh, written by uh, Evan Placey or Plassey. I apologize, Evan, if I mispronounced your name. Um, and that's a great show directed by Esther June, who's another uh, fellow artist and mentor of mine, too. Look at Yeah. All right, fantastic. Um, go see or have seen all of that stuff. Um, and uh, thanks so much, Vicky, man. This was fucking, this was the best. Thank you. Um, well, this was the best so far. Sorry, Dan. <laughs> um, y'all have a, a wonderful night. Thanks for running up the downstairs with us. And, uh, ooh. That was good. Thanks for running up the downstairs with us. You heard the genesis of my new ending of the podcast right here, live. Thanks for running up the downstairs. It's fucking real. Uh, Peace out, everyone. Have a good night.